Let's begin today by praying together Psalm 84 on page 814 of your Trinity hymnal. Psalm 84, this is an appropriate psalm for the Lord's Day in particular as, the, as David, the psalmist, meditates on his desire to be with the people of God, to be in the house of God, that it is what his soul yearns for above all things. It's important to say here that the psalmist is not just talking about God's general presence. God is om- omnipresent, of course, and so is everywhere, but he's talking specifically about the presence of God that attends the worship of his people and they're gathered together in his courts. That is what he longs for because he knows that that is itself a foreshadowing of the special presence of God, which um, he anticipates he will know for eternity in the resurrection. So Psalm 84, we'll pray this responsively. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. Even the sparrow has found a home in the swallow, a nest for herself, where she may have her young. A place near your altar, O Lord Almighty, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your, in your house. They are ever praising you. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The Autumn rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength till we reach the earth before God in Zion. Hear my prayer, O Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, O God of Jacob. Look upon our shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointed one. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk with blameless. O Lord God Almighty, blessed is the man who trusts in you. Indeed, Father, we um, long for your presence, Father. Um, We desire um, your face. And we give you thanks today that we um, have good hope, even this morning, of being with you of being in your presence, Father. We know that it is not the fullness of that promise, and certainly we anticipate and look forward um, to the consummation of all things, but we give you thanks today, Father, for the foreshadowing that our worship is on the Lord's Day when we are gathered together um, with your people, um, that you promise um, to draw us into your very presence, into your courts, Father. Um, We pray that we would experience again that blessing this morning and that we would be changed. And we pray also for our um, time of instruction and education this morning before uh, worship that your spirit would dwell with us and grant us wisdom. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So um, we're going to start today with our normal topic um, that we've been going through. And I've got a handout for that. Let's see. Donovan, will you help me? And David, you guys will each help pass out some handouts. You can put the extras in the back. Um, we're going to conclude the, the teaching portion of our um, Sunday School Hour early today to give um, our RUF minister, Justin Smith, who is here from University of North Texas. Justin is preaching today, and I also wanted to give him some time during Sunday School to give you all a, 
chance to get to know him a little bit. Some of you know him already, but some of you don't. And so to give him a chance to talk about his, um, his ministry and his life and his family. So he's going to do that um, probably around 10. Um, we'll break um, to give Justin a, a chance to do that for 10 or 15 minutes. Um, so we are going through um, the General Assembly report on human sexuality that came out um, two years ago now. Um, we are on the third week of that class. Uh, last, or wasn't last Sunday because we suspended Sunday school last Sunday for daylight savings uh, change. Um, so two weeks ago, we looked at the preamble to this report. And just to, by way of reminder, um, the, the study, the authors of the report talked about their understanding that they had two tasks um, that they wanted to accomplish with their report. One they described as the pastoral task um, which was essentially to um, give aid and instruction um, to pastors and sessions and churches and, and lay members um, about um, how to minister to those who struggle with sexual sin, particularly um, the sin of homosexual um, uh, homosexuality in particular, or issues around gender confusion, those kinds of things. Um, so there's a pastoral task here, a desire to aid um, in the pastoral care of members of our church or those who might be members of our church um, uh, upon receiving and understanding the gospel. Um, but they also described a second task as one of apologetics, so a pastoral task and an apologetic task. And the apologetic task is more, we might say, outward focused. Um, I mean, inwardly focused too, because certainly these are issues of discussion um, even within the church today. Um, but that task is essentially to, to be honest about the fact that there's a great deal of confusion about sexuality and sexual ethics in our culture today. And so they understood that part of their, their role was to uh, speak truth um, into the confusion that exists biblically um, within our culture. So a pastoral task and an apologetic task. And so they talked about two fears that might attend a report like this. That there might be the fear of harshness, um, that a report like this, a study like this would be harsh in the way that it describes the truth. It would be uncaring or uncompassionate, particularly th toward those who, who wrestle with uh, specific sexual sin. Um, uh, it would be perceived to be um, unkind in that way. And, and they talk about this might be a fear that someone has as they read a report like this. Another fear would be, or not just a report like this, but these issues in general, whenever they come up, it would be the fear of compromise, right? So the fear that um, that when we speak about issues of sexuality and sexual holiness, that we might compromise the truth because it is unpalatable in many ways um, today in our broader culture and even to some extent within the church. Um, it's, it's easy to compromise. It's easy to, to not speak truthfully about these things because often today the, the truth, biblically speaking, about sexuality and gender is perceived to be toxic. It's perceived to be, um, you know, it's not just incorrect, it's dangerous what the Bible teaches to people, to their mental health, um, to their emotional health. Um, that's, that's the argument that's being made today. And so you can understand both those fears. And that, that's part of what they argued was that both of these fears are understandable. Um, the church has at times been harsh uh, when uh, it has talked about issues of sexual sin. Um, the church at times has been compromised um, when it has talked about sexual sin and sexual holiness. Um, so these are both legitimate fears, they say. Uh, and the path forward, the, the committee writers or the report writers argue, is 
uh, is not to sort of err on one side or the other, um, but it is to bring the whole Christ to bear. So he talks about the marrow, they talk about the marrow controversy, that book by uh, Sinclair Ferguson and how Ferguson argues that, um, you know, the, the if someone is struggling with legalism, the antidote to that is not a, a dose of, of antinomianism, um, you know, a rejection of the law. Um, if someone is struggling with antinomianism, the, the response to that is not legalism, you know, to, to teach the law incorrectly. Rather, it's to present the whole Christ who uh, brings all of himself to bear, um, who is himself in himself both truth and love. And that's their desire in this report is to speak both truth and love, boldly, compassionately, openly, um, but to do so in a way that addresses both those fears and accomplishes both of those pastoral and apologetic tasks. Any questions about any of that before we jump into some of these statements? Okay, you'll recall that the structure of the report is such that um, it begins with 12 statements um, that, um, they and they talk about this in the preamble, that it was these 12 statements that the committee spent the most time wrestling with and talking about and debating, discussing, and to the extent where they felt like they could all seven of them sign off on every, every word um, in the 12 statements completely, um, that they were totally unified on the, there are es longer essays that follow that, you know, that they are in general agreement about, but didn't go over with a fine tooth comb in the same way. Um, but these 12 statements, they intend to be kind of summaries of what they believe the Bible to teach um, about the issues of sexual holiness, particularly around issues of homosexuality and gender confusion. So we're going to work through these statements one by one. I don't know if we're really going to get to three today. Um, probably not, is my prediction. Um, but that's fine. I'm not in a hurry here. Um, we've got plenty of time to, to work through these things in weeks to come. So the first statement is marriage. And I would say that these statements, you know, they, I mean, I think there's a lot to unpack here in the statement on marriage, but they we're going to get increasingly more complex theologically, and, 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 um, and that's good. I think there's, there's a lot to unpack in these 12 statements. So marriage. But this, I think this one is fairly, at least with, you know, it's fairly straightforward, this statement. They say, we affirm that marriage is to be between one man and one woman. Um, not necessarily a controversial um, description of marriage, um, historically speaking, but of course today is is, um, does come with some controversy. Um, they quote there as proof texts or as text to consider and are in support of that argument, Genesis 2, um, where Eve is brought to Adam at the beginning of creation and they are uh, become one flesh. Um, we hear um, the writer of Genesis making the editorial comment, um, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become uh, one flesh. Um, that's the interpretation that the writer of Genesis gives to uh, the story of how Eve is brought to Adam in that moment. And then they quote also from Matthew 19, which is where Jesus um, quotes from Genesis 2 to apply to the question of divorce in the context where he's being questioned about whether it is permissible to divorce your wife or not. And he goes back to Genesis 2 and quotes from that story and that uh, narrative and even those words that a, a man and a wife have become one flesh. Um, and he makes, Jesus makes a, a comment there as well. Let's see if I can quickly turn to it. Uh, 
Um, so he says in verse 6, he interprets what Genesis 2 means. He says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh, a man and a wife, his wife. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate, um, he says. And I think that's a, that's a really important um, idea, that, that, that God is the one that has joined uh, the man and the wife together. And because of what he has done, um, they are now one flesh, um, one um, yeah, they're joined together in union with each other. Um, and then they also reference Westminster 24, um, chapter paragraph 1, which simply says, this is from our theological standards, marriage is to be between one man and one woman. Neither is it lawful for any man to have more than one wife, nor for any woman to have more than one husband at the same time. Um, so the, the writers of the standards are very specific to, um, you know, exclude polygamy is what they're doing there, right, um, uh, from uh, uh, possibility. And, and honestly, when, you know, the writers of the standards in the mid-1600s are composing um, this work, you know, the, even the idea of a man and a man being married was not on their radar as something that would be um, considered um, in culture or, you know, there wasn't any so, so that, you know, they're speaking more in a context where um, the idea of polygamy or the idea of having more than one sexual partners at a time would have been more of the danger, um, so to speak, in terms of marriage. All right. So that's a pretty straightforward statement, of course. Um, then they go ahead and say, sexual intimacy is a gift from God to be cherished and is reserved for the marriage relationship between one man and one woman. Um, so we might say that they define marriage in that first sentence, and then they talk about the, the gift of marriage. Um, and I'm happy that they begin here with sexual intimacy in a positive way, right? Um, it's very important, and we're going to talk about this when we talk about the image of God in the next statement, that, that the, we need to be very clear when we're talking about these sexual issues, sexual errors, sexual sins, that, that sex is a good thing, that bodies are a good thing, um, that um, sexuality is a gift um, that is precious, that is beautiful, that is given within the context of um, certainly the covenant of marriage um, between one man and one woman, but when it is experienced in that way, um, it can indeed be a blessed and holy uh, thing um, w with no shame, with no, um, yeah, with, yeah, no shame is probably the best way to put that. So they quote here from Proverbs. They might have quoted in a lot of different places, of course, in the scriptures um, to prove this or to show this. Um, but they go to Proverbs 5. Um, Proverbs 5, and I read the previous couple of verses as well for more context. Um, Proverbs 5, beginning in verse 15, um, Solomon says, Drink water from your own cistern. And here he's speaking to his son. He's giving him instruction. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. And here he's speaking in the context of marriage. Um, so for sexual pleasure, for sexual delight, go to the well that you've been given. Go to the wife that God has given you. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Um, so here the, the metaphor is the idea that, you know, your, your wife's sexuality, her beauty, um, it should not be for everyone, it should be for you. It should be a, a should not be scattered abroad. It should be for yourself alone and for not for strangers. Let your fountain be blessed 
and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Um, which is just a remarkable sort of description of um, the gift of marriage, the gift of sexuality within the context of marriage. Um, and and, and I, I, what I, one of the things I like about that passage in Proverbs, which is um, beautiful, is the way that it speaks to the, the hiddenness of delight, sexual delight in marriage. Um, and I think this is something that's just important to talk about. There, there should be, um, you know, within the, a Christian marriage, I would argue that, you know, it should be, um, you know, like you hear about these icebergs where just a little bit is poking up above the surface, right? And then there's all of this ice under the surface that you can't see. Um, and that really is how, I think, even within the context of monogamous marital relationships, there increasingly there is this movement in our culture that, that sexuality, you know, should be something that is just like, out in the open, like you're, you guys know what I'm talking about, like, like pastors will talk about their smoking hot wife and, you know, how they have this amazing sex life and whatever, blah, blah, blah. What I'm arguing for is that, um, and this, and this follows a general culture trend, which is to say, you know, sexuality is not something that should be private and hidden. It's something that should be on the outside. You wear it on your sleeve, right? Your sexual preferences, your sexual life, um, all of those things. And what I want to argue for, what I think Proverbs argues for it here is there should be a, a kind of holy hiddenness, a kind of holy secrecy even to the marital intimacy that exists between a husband and a wife. I'm not saying, don't hear what I'm not saying, I'm not saying that you know if there are sexual problems in your marriage um, that you shouldn't ask for help or you shouldn't come to your pastor or come to someone that you trust or a counselor and, and ask for help um, within the context of your marriage. But what I am saying is that if you are a married person, um, your sexual life with your spouse should be, there should be a hiddenness to it. There should be a, a quality of mystery. Um, there should be something, does that make sense? Like it, it should not be something that's just, I think sometimes today we, we don't carefully guard enough the kind of sexual um, intimacy that should be between a husband and a wife. Um, there is increasingly in our culture just this idea that we should have the freedom to talk about our sex lives with anyone. And I, I want to argue that I don't think that makes a lot of sense in the scriptures. Um, that there should be a, a, there should be most of our marriage, um, I think, in a, in a righteous, and should be shared between a husband and a wife in a way that others don't really see or know. And I think that's a good thing. And again, I'm not arguing for shame and arguing for covering up things that shouldn't be covered up. But I am saying that's part of what I think the scriptures talk about um, is a, a, a hidden delight that exists between a man and his wife that can only exist for the record, I believe, um, when a man and a wife have lived together for decades and, and fostered that gift of sexual intimacy and delight um, that is like a, a bonfire in comparison to the flame of a fling or an affair or a one-night stand, or whatever, you know, the language is that we want to use to, to sexual encounters outside of marriage. Um, and it's, it's because of that secrecy, it's because of that hiddenness, because of that time um, that has existed between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. Any thoughts about that? Any questions before I continue to move forward?
Yes. Yeah, I think that's great. It's a great question. Um, so James is asking, how do you do what I'm talking about while also having a healthy openness with your children about sexuality? Um, so two things I would say. One is I would encourage married couples um, who have children um, to be affectionate in front of their children <laughs> with one another. Um, I think that's really healthy and good. That's a gift you give to your kids. They should. Your I would I would encourage your children to grow up have the greatest context where your children would grow up with memories of you, of, you know, you kissing your wife or your wife kissing you or embracing you or, you know, sitting together on the couch with your arms around each other or, you know, whatever that looks like in your particular context. Um, but that's a, like PDA is a good thing, so to speak, in the context of marriage with your children. Um, and it shouldn't be, and, and honestly, it shouldn't be this thing where, um, you know, I think there. I think we, we joke about things that are hard to talk about, right? Like this is why, like parents, do PDA, and sometimes you know, like there's this idea that kids should be like, oh, that's gross or whatever. Like that, that shouldn't be. It shouldn't be gross. It should be beautiful. You know what I mean? Like, and we we need to teach our kids that. Like this is not gross. If I don't know that, you know, our children will necessarily respond that way. I think that's a little overblown. Um, but if they do, do you know what I mean? Like this is something that we should normalize for them. That there is a an intimacy, um, a delight between a husband and a wife um, that, is, that is normal, that is good. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing I would say, um, James, is that I think I would encourage parents, uh, fathers, to talk with sons and mothers to talk with daughters about, not necessarily about their own sex life, you know, with their spouse, um, but about sex. And if you read Proverbs, I mean, that's what it, Proverbs is. A lot of, you know, especially the, well, the whole thing, but particularly the first portion of Proverbs talks a lot about sex. And Proverbs is just a father speaking to his son and giving him wisdom, giving him instruction. And I think what that is, that is a holy calling for us as parents, for fathers with sons, for mothers with daughters, to talk with them about sex, to give them a place to ask any question they want to ask, right? Anything that they're curious about, um, for there to be an open dialogue and conversation. And I think you can do that while also preserving the, the things that should be preserved. Um, so that's what I would say. Does that help? It's hard to do. It's Many of us probably grew up with parents that didn't do it very well. Um, but I want to say that we should do that as parents. Um, we should talk with our children about sex, um, particularly in the context of one-on-one -on -one 
conversations and relationships. That's a huge, huge, huge gift we can give our kids. Um, so the, so here's the purpose of marriage then, this third sentence. He, the writers say, marriage was instituted by God for the mutual help and blessing of husband and wife, for procreation and the raising together of godly children and to prevent sexual immorality. Um, so first that phrase, marriage was instituted by God. Um, that comes, of course, from Genesis 1, um, where he says, uh, let us make man in our image, um, male and female, right? And, and, and the Lord institutes marriage. The Lord in Genesis 2 is the one who makes Eve and brings Eve to Adam um, so that they are joined together as one flesh. And th- this is a really particular thing, important thing to think about. And I try to get people to think about this a lot um, when they think about getting married to start with and when they are in a marriage that's challenging, um, that Marriage is instituted by God, not by man. Um, When you show up on your wedding day, you are just giving consent to something that God is doing. You are not doing it, right? You don't have the capacity to make yourself one flesh with another person. Only God can do that. Um, Marriage is something that God institutes, and um, in a similar way, marriage is something that only God can end. You cannot end your marriage before God. Um, You might be able to go down to the courthouse in Texas these days. I wish it weren't so, but you can, and file papers to end your marriage. But that isn't the same thing as ending your marriage um, in the eyes of God. And that's that's something that we should really be thoughtful about and think about, that marriage is is an institution that we participate in, but not one that we are over or that we create. it is, it is something that you, it is a situation you get put into by God. Um, and it has certain, it is, it is participating in, in, in something above yourself um, that is over you in some way. Um, there's a quote here I have from Dietrich Bonhoeffer that I think gets to this reality really well. Bonhoeffer was writing this as a letter to two friends who were getting married. Um, he wrote from, Uh, I believe 1943, um, from a Nazi prison, um, or 1942, these words um, that you read here as part of his letters and papers from prison, which was collected in a really fascinating um, volume that you can read. Um, But he wrote to his friends in that context before their wedding day or around their wedding day. He said to them, marriage is more than your love for each other. It has a higher dignity and power for it is God's holy ordinance something God has instituted, through which he wills to perpetuate the human race till the end of time. God instituted marriage, and one of the reasons he did it was so that there would be human beings, so there would be a a future for the race. In your love, he says, you see only your two selves in the world, but in marriage you are a link in the chain of the generations, which is fascinating to think about, right? Biblically speaking, only married people have the vocation of giving birth to children and raising them up. Now, I'm not, of course, that happens outside of marriage, and those children shouldn't be ashamed of that, but we should also say it's not the way that God intended it. God intended for children to be, for the human race to be perpetuated within the context of marriage. That was God's intention. 
In your love, you see only your two selves in the world, but in marriage, you are a link in the chain of the generations, which God causes to come and to pass away to his glory and calls into his kingdom. In your love, you see only the heaven of your own happiness, but in marriage, you are placed at a post of responsibility towards the world and mankind. Your love is your own private possession. He says, I'll give you your love. You can have that privately. But marriage is more. Marriage is more than something personal. It is a status. It is an office. I think that word of office is really helpful. It's a calling. It's a vocation. It's not something that you invent. It's something that you give your consent to and that you swear vows to. And, the pub and that's why you do marriage is a public thing. Weddings are public. Just as it is the crown and not merely the will to rule that makes the king, so it is marriage. So marriage is like the crown that is placed on you by God. And not merely your love for each other that joins you together in the sight of God and man. As high as God is above man, so high are the sanctity, the rights, and the purpose, the promise of marriage, above the sanctity, the rights, and the promise of love. It is not your love that sustains the marriage, but from now on the marriage that sustains your love. And this is why, and uh, the same chapter in Westminster 24, which is a wonderful chapter, I commend it to you. The sixth paragraph says this about divorce. Although the corruption of man, and I should say, you have the Westminster Standards or Confession in your hymnal, if you want to be reading along. Um, it's back there. So chapter 24 is on page 862. So I'm reading from the sixth paragraph, which is on the following page. Um, Although the corruption of man be such as to apt to study arguments unduly to put asunder, those whom God hath joined together in marriage, yet nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate is cause sufficient for dissolving the bond of marriage. So they're saying, as the scriptures teach, um, that the only things that can um, be sufficient causes for the dissolution of a marriage in the eyes of God are adultery or willful desertion that can't be remedied by the state or the church. Um, but here's the point that I want to I point out to you. Wherein a public and orderly course of proceeding is to be observed and the persons concerned in it not left to their own wills and discretion in their own case. Do you notice what it's saying here in the standards? You don't get to decide whether your spouse has sinned against you in such a way that you can end your marriage. That's what it's saying. It has to be a public and orderly course of proceeding, and the persons involved, concerned in it, are not left to their own wills, their own desires, and their own discretion, their own decisions, in their own case. It has to be up to somebody else. And that is because of what I'm talking about here, that marriage is not something that you created. So you can't end it on your own. Only God can do that. Only God can create your marriage. Only God can dissolve your marriage in a proper way, in a way that you are not the person who makes the decision. Does that make sense? Okay. So marriage is instituted by God for that reason. I think that's a really important point as we think about marriage. Um, and I would quote also, the, I think the Malachi quote here is really important as well, that they um, 
reference Malachi 2, 14 to 15. Um, Malachi is talking about divorce um, and why it's a sin that Israel is guilty of at this point in her history, or Judah, rather. Um, In verse 15, he says, Did he, that is God, not make them one, that is the husband and wife, with the portion of the Spirit in their union? You're made one by God in marriage by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, in some sense, binds you to your spouse. Husband to wife, wife to husband. The Spirit makes you one. You didn't do that. That's what Malachi is saying. So you can't just throw it off um, because it's something that God has done. Um, so they go through the reasons for marriage, the mutual help and blessing of husband and wife. It's for procreation and the raising of godly children. And we should, you know, be honest about that. That's one of the reasons marriage is for, is for procreation. One of the central reasons marriage is given to us is to raise uh, godly children and to prevent sexual immorality. And there they are talking about, um, he, you know, the reference there is 1 Corinthians 7, um, where Paul talks about uh, marriage when they, you know, you may abstain from sex in your marriage for a brief period of time for prayer, but you may not um, abstain from sex for an extended period of time, Paul says, in your marriage. Uh, because one of the reasons that marriage is given to you is to prevent you from sexual sin. And you need to, uh, the, one of the ways that married people are prevented from sexual sin is by enjoying intimacy with one another. And he also argues that if you're unmarried, it's better to get married than to burn or to be aflame with desire. Um, you should find a proper um, a place for that desire to be located uh, within the context of marriage. Which is, I mean, 1 Corinthians 7 is really fascinating. Paul gets really practical, right? Um, pastorally. And it's also, it's just interesting in the context of the day in which he spoke about marriage in that way. Yeah, Matt? Yeah, so um, one thing I would do is refer to you to another study committee report. Um, there is a, a, a PCA, General Assembly Study Committee report on divorce and remarriage. And it's at the website. I put it in a, one of the previous handouts I can send it. But, but if you just Google that, probably will come up, PCA, divorce and remarriage report. Um, so yeah, so we would certainly talk about there being occasions for um, abuse constituting Desertion in a marriage um, would be the argument. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, but there's no, I, what I would say is that, um, again, the, the key point there is that it's not something, it's something that you have, I would say, even if you are in an abusive relationship with your spouse, um, your role is to take that evidence to the proper authorities. And in terms of the church, the elders of the church, the session, and allow them to determine whether what you've experienced constitutes a reason for dissolving your marriage. Does that make sense? Um, yeah, but certainly we would. There are there are circumstances where abuse can constitute a um, the dissolution of a marriage. I would say. Yep. And that that yeah that general assembly study report tries to go into a lot of more detail than I just did. 
Anything else? Okay. All right, I am going to conclude then. Um, we will next week talk about, and I, part of the reason I don't want to get into the next one is because it's, you know, it's a bigger, a bigger question, um, that marriage is a God-ordained picture of the differentiated relationship between Christ and the church, and this idea that all other forms of sexual intimacy, including all forms of lust and same-sex sexual activity of any kind, are sinful. Um, I think that's something that bears a bit more time and discussion um, from us, um, and I want to give it that time. So we'll do that. We'll pick up that with that in a, a week to come. All right, let me have Justin come up. Justin, it's so great to have you um, with us this morning. I'm grateful for it. Um, Justin's going to take a few minutes now to introduce himself to you. Um, Justin is the campus minister at um, RUF and um, at the University of North Texas in Denton, um, Texas. And you've been there for how long? Uh, finishing up my fifth year. Okay, so you came in, what, 2017? 17. 17. That's right. Yeah, so previous, Justin may talk about this, but previous to Justin, the minister there was Matt Odom, um, who was a friend of mine, and uh, we started to support RUF um, at UNT a couple years before Justin came when Matt was still the minister. Um, but we're so glad that you're here with us, Justin, and look yeah. forward to having your wife and children here in a little bit, and just take it away. Love yeah. to tell us, tell us about yourself and your ministry. Sure. Um, well, thanks for uh, hosting me here, and um, I'm excited to be able to preach a little bit later on. Uh, my name is Justin Smith, and I grew up down the road in Arlington, Texas, is where I'm from. My parents still live there. Uh, I have a brother and his uh, wife and kids live in Godley, Texas, which is near Burleson, if you know that area. So all of my immediate family is still kind of in the area, and, and thankfully I get to see them often. Um, I'm married, me and my wife, uh, her name is Catherine, and we've been married for, June will be 11 years, and we have two children, um, one, uh, Vivian, she just turned four years old a couple weeks ago on March 11th. And then I have a son named Nathaniel, and he will turn one on April 1st. And so we have a very loud home <laughs> right now. My, my wife and I are, are more introverted people. Uh, my daughter is the extreme opposite of that. So. Um, they will actually be here for the service in a little bit, which I'm thankful for, and uh, you will probably get to know Vivian. <laughs> it won't take very long. Her, so Vivian, uh, uh, vivacious. Vivian means life, <laughs> and she fulfills that name really, really well. Um, but we are, we are so blessed to have two wonderful children. Um, so, but I grew up in Arlington. Um, made my way eventually to Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee, and that's where I came into contact with RUF and the PCA. Before that, I grew up Southern Baptist in this area, which is pretty common in this area, but um, I made it to the PCA through RUF. Uh, my campus minister is a guy named Kevin Twitt, and Kevin Twitt did, uh, has done a lot of music stuff called Indelible Grace, if, if anybody knows about that. That started out of Belmont where I was involved there. But I, yeah, so I got into to RUF through, or through to the PCA through RUF. 
um, and it's really why I'm here now. So I, uh, I did RUF in, in Nashville and then eventually went to seminary in Atlanta and was really wanting to do campus ministry. Uh, my experience of RUF while I was there was such that I wanted to be uh, the campus minister that would give back to these students, who would walk with them through hard seasons in their lives and to help kind of patiently walk through the hard questions that they had. We say in RUF, our kind of three taglines, we say, uh, make good friends. So we want it to be a place where people can have a, a sense of community. Ask good questions. So we want it to be a place where students can come and ask their questions, whether it's related to sexuality, like y'all are talking about, whether it's related to all of these things that are swirling. We want it to be a place that people can come ask those questions and realize that there are answers to a lot of the questions that they have. They might not always like the answers, but there are answers and we can wrestle with them through those things. So ask good questions and then finally hear good news. <laughs> we are about the gospel. We are about preaching the gospel to a place that really needs it. And so uh, I got called to to come and be the RUF campus minister at University of North Texas, which I knew a little bit about growing up at Arlington and also being a, a musician myself um, growing up, playing lots of different instru instruments. Uh, I knew lots of people who went to University of North Texas. So I was excited to come because, uh, as you probably know, one of the main things about UNT is it is a music school. It's kind of two different schools. It's the music school and it's everything else. <laughs> um, and they have a lot of other great programs, journalism, um, uh, law enforcement, things like this are, are really great. Psychology are, are great programs and education, uh, but really music is the heartbeat of the school. And so it kind of revolves around music. So I was glad to come back to the school. If you don't know, UNT has 38,000 students. <laughs> So it's a large university just up the road. It's about the size of the University of Alabama. Um, has about 38,000 students. Um, it is a highly diverse campus. It has 55% minority, mostly Hispanic uh, make up that minority. Uh, and most of those in UN, uh, who go to UNT will make up their home, will make their home in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. So most, a lot of them come from this area. A lot of them will make their home in this area. So our students will end up here in Colleyville. So just a couple things to think about for RUF is, why do we want to reach college students? Why do we do this? Why do we take the time to do this? Somebody gave me the image a long time ago about wet cement. So wet cement is, is, is still wet, but it's right on the edge of hardening into the form that it's going to be. And college students are wet cement. They are in that, 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 that moment where they can be molded. They are being molded. They are being formed into their habits and their practices and their beliefs that actually will often last a lifetime. Uh, some studies have shown that really only 5 to 10% of people will become Christians after college. So once you get past college age, a lot of people are set in their beliefs and their habits that, that becoming a Christian becomes less and less likely after college. And so it's, it is this opportune time to meet students where they're at and to, to help them see convincingly 
the beauty of the gospel. Um, to help, and, and, and often students coming to the university away from their homes, away from their places, away from their people, even if they grew up in the church, it's a fresh time for them to hear the gospel, perhaps for the first time. Even if they grew up in church, many of them in college kind of confirm or understand the gospel for the first time. That is really true of my story as well. I grew up in the church and knew it. Became, I was baptized when I was six. But it's really sitting under the preaching of my campus minister and going through the things I went through that I understood really who Jesus was and why he came for me. But one, one of the things I just wanted to, to mention about why we also reach college students is because the real problem on college campuses is not just s- sexual issues, drinking issues, all the stuff that you might imagine on a campus. The real problem for college students is loneliness. Uh, this, there was an article in the New York Times several years ago that's called The Real Campus Scourge. He wrote this. Across the country, college freshmen are settling into their new lives and grappling with something that doesn't compete with protests and political correctness for the media's attention. Something that no one prepared them for. Something that has everything to do with being human. They're lonely. And a sea of people, they find themselves adrift. The technology that keeps them connected to parents and high school friends only reminds them of their physical separation from just about everyone they knew best. That estrangement can be a gateway to binge drinking and other self-destructive behavior, and it's as likely to derail their ambitions as almost anything else. They're lonely. And of course, COVID, uh, the time of COVID the last couple years has only exponentially increased this on campus. Uh, The rise in anxiety and depression and destructive behaviors has only um, exponentially grown. I was sitting in a a meeting with the dean of students this this last um, August, and she was mentioning, talking about this, uh, what they call the UNT CARE team. And the UNT CARE team is is a group of, of people on campus, volunteers who are there to meet students in a time of crisis, where they become a danger to themselves. It started in in 2008 is when they they started this UNT care program. And in 2008, they had 11 cases that they met. Well, in 2020, they had 470 cases of students being referred to them or referring themselves who are in this point of high-risk behavior, is what they call it. It's a lonely place. (laughs) And it's even more lonely because of technology and because of COVID. And so we want to be the church going to campus. (laughs) We want to be a place of welcome. And I I like to think of RUF as being extended hospitality of the church to the campus. So imagine, uh, you know, you have a a potluck with this church, with Colleyville Prez. You set out all the tables. And it's a place of, of welcome and hospitality. And what RUF wants to be is, is adding an extra extension of that table to the campus. <laughs> and I'm sitting there at that table and welcoming students to a place of hospitality, to the church. A place of non-superficial, uh, a welcoming community. A place where we can understand our role of, of, of greeting people and helping them wrestle through these things. One of my favorite verses in all scriptures, Romans 
uh, the end of Romans, in Romans 15, Paul says this, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another and accord with Jesus Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And I always, I always ask my students, how did Christ welcome you? Was it by things that you had done? Uh, was it something in you that he welcomed? You know, it was, it was the very opposite. Uh, we were not searching for him, but he welcomes us, even in all of our mess. And so we can welcome those students, even in all of their mess, to come and to explore Christianity. I love uh, Henry Nouwen's definition of hospitality. He says it's, it's not making space for a friend, but actually hospitality truly is about making space for an enemy or someone who is unlike us in order that they might become a friend. And so we're always seeking to welcome. So reaching students for Christ is what we say, reaching students for Christ and equipping them to serve. So we want to reach students for Christ. And, and one story about this, um, we, we have this one student who's been coming this semester recently. He's a freshman, obviously wasn't connected to many people, but he, he showed up and just has started coming. He is uh, very much an atheist. <laughs> he will tell you that. He is very crude. He's very loud, but he just keeps coming back. And uh, he, he's come to our, our small group stuff. He comes to our large group stuff. He's come to our parties, to our, to our gatherings. And he just, he obviously needs people around him, but he's interested in what we have to say. And we were, st we were standing at my, uh, our large group a couple weeks ago, and this other kid walked in because he saw our sign. I, I'm, I'm preaching on kind of theological anthropology. I'm talking about what does it mean to be a human being according to the Bible, according to Genesis 1 and 2. And so he walked in thinking it was kind of a philosophical conversation or, or presentation about this thing. He said he was interested in that. And uh, so he walked in, and... I told him what we were doing. I said I was a pastor. He was like, oh, well, actually, I'm an atheist, so maybe this is not the, the thing for me to, to be at. I'll just go ahead and leave. And this, this other new student who has been coming walks in right around the time he says that. And he says, well, I'm an atheist, too, but I, I like to hang out with these guys and listen to what they have to say. <laughs> so he, he did not individually stay, but maybe... Uh, when we say we really do want to welcome students, to, in, to invite them to experience and, and to uh, begin to understand who Jesus is, we really do want those students there. And it's such a good opportunity for that. Um, I'm going to go through this fast because I'm going longer than I intended to. Uh, the, the second thing that we talk about, so reaching students for Christ and equipping them to serve. And so what we hope to do with RUF is to equip students with the gospel, with justification, sanctification, scripture, to be able to understand how do they go back out into the world and their vocations and be Christians in their vocations, but also how do they serve the church? Because ultimately, our goal is not to, to, to have a great group on campus. Ultimately, our go goal is to, to see students pushed back into the church, especially when they graduate, and become a m healthy members of their 
hopefully PCA churches if they're available, but in the church, in the kingdom of God. And so this is our one of our distinctives. This is about building in and strengthening the church with a long-term view. And so if you ask me, how is RUF going? The real answer to that is you need to ask me in 10 years how it's going. Because our goal is not now. Our goal is the future for students to be involved. And so this matters for your church because there are peop- students in my ministry who can't spell PCA or much under- know what PCA is who will be uh, deacons in your church, who will be elders, who will be lay leaders, who will be uh, servants in your church because of RUF. And this is my story. I didn't know what the PCA was before I came into RUF. Uh, and now I'm serving as a, a minister in the PCA. And so, uh, last, how can we, how can you encourage uh, our, our ministry here? Pray for us. <laughs> Please pray for us. The last two years, um, with COVID and restrictions and being able to wade through all of that stuff and being off campus and back on campus, um, has been incredibly difficult. Um, we've lost, you just lose a lot of momentum, a lot. We've had very little ability to meet students the last two years. And so, um, yeah, just finding ways to navigate this stuff has been difficult for us. Uh, and yet we have a great group of students. So pray that we would continue to, to be faithful, to show up, and to minister to the students that God has given us. Um, if you know students that are coming to UNT, uh, please reach out to me and connect them to me. We would love to, to, to greet them and welcome them. Um, your church supports us financially, and so part of why I'm here is just to say thank you. Uh, part of the money that you give, um, that you tithe to your church, uh, comes to our ministry and supports me and my family and the work that we do on campus there. So thank you for your giving. But our ministry is only supported by churches and individuals and the presbytery. Um, but churches and individuals is what supports our ministry. And the majority of that actually comes from individuals. So we are always raising money. We are an arm of the church uh, going to campus. And so we're always, but our, our members, we don't really have members, and, but they don't tithe. <laughs> uh, they don't give money to RUF to keep it going. And so we are dependent on those outside uh, to keep us afloat, to keep us supported. Um, going and so if you want to be a part of helping extend that table to the campus uh, providing food even in that way actually giving money that we might provide food for that table uh, all the resources that make our our ministry go I would love to talk to you about it Um, outside on the table right outside the door I have a few little pamphlets you can take um, some pins there's a sign up sheet for our kind of email newsletter and um yeah that's all thank you josh go down please sign up i would love to have everyone in this room get on justin's email list so you get what a couple every couple months something like that uh just an update on the work at unt so you can be praying for it so you can um, give it some thought and consideration that would be a very practical thing that you can do to support the ministry um Justin will be here, obviously. We'll be happy to take questions um, from you and to talk more about the work of RUF and encourage you to get to know him and his family. 
Let's pray. Um, Father, I do pray for Justin and I pray for his work um, at UNC. We're grateful for his faithfulness, and we know that it has been a, a long and difficult season. We pray that you would sustain him, Lord. And we ask that you would bless him even now as he prepares to preach um, this morning. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Mm-hmm.